We know you like to stay up to date on all the latest news. It's why you're listening to this podcast. Well, now you can stream our podcast and several others like it on Spotify. I listen to my music on Spotify, but I'd not listened to a podcast until just now. And it's really easy. Just open the app on your mobile device or desktop, click on the browse channel, then click on the podcast section. You can also stream on your smart speaker. Start streaming today to stay up to date on the world's latest news on Spotify. Welcome to the very first episode of Displaced, a podcast from the International Rescue Committee and the Vox Media Podcast Network. I am Grant Gordon. And I'm Ravi Guramurthy, and we're your co-hosts on the show. This is the podcast that you should be listening to if you care about human suffering and how to reduce it. We're going to be talking about humanitarian crises, how we respond to them, the politics of these situations, and the policies that shape them. In our everyday work, Grant and I think about how to respond to humanitarian disasters, how to reach more people, how to make a bigger difference to their lives. This podcast is our chance to talk to people who can help us do that. It's about digging into the causes and consequences of war, how to save and improve lives, and how those who work on these issues think about their world. Every week, we'll be talking with people who Ravi and I really want to engage with, humanitarians, policymakers, and innovators, discussing with them what innovation looks like when we're talking about displacement, crises, and the refugee crisis. We're going to dive right into our first conversation with Madeleine Albright. Madeleine Albright grew up as a refugee, first in Britain and then in the US, and then rose to become US ambassador to the UN, and then the first female Secretary of State under President Bill Clinton. Madeleine Albright is one of the most strident defenders of the United States' responsibility to intervene on behalf of the victims of violence and human suffering around the globe. She has shattered glass ceilings when she became the first female Secretary of State in 1997 and has been a staunch voice on humanitarian intervention and the cosmopolitan global order. But the issue that she has been most eloquent on recently may be the refugee crisis globally and here in America. Thank you very much for being here. Very glad to be with you. Thank you. We wanted to start and talk about the refugee crisis. Um, you and your family were forced to flee Czechoslovakia twice, first from the Nazis and then second from the communists. And particularly during the peak of World War II, this was the moment at which the world was really experiencing the worst global displacement crisis it had ever seen. It's the moment that gave way to the very institutions that underpin the global order today. And since that moment, right now, we're again seeing the worst global displacement crisis since then. We have 65 million internally displaced individuals, 22 million of uh, those displaced are refugees. And I'm curious from your experience and vantage point, how does this moment uh, differ from the moment that you grew up in? Well, I think that it differs in many ways, but I have to tell you, I'm very pleased to be able to be with you to talk about this because I think it is one of the most horrendous things that's happening uh, in the 21st century, frankly, that we are involved in watching this many people displaced. And I think the thing that makes this particular tragedy much worse is that we know how to deal with this. We have dealt with large numbers of refugees and displaced people before, and there are organizations in place, whether they are the international ones like um, the uh, Refugee Council that uh, the UN has or non-governmental organizations such as the International Rescue Committee and, um, and a variety of ways that we do know that 
in a world that is borderless in so many ways that people move around and that there has to be some way to really integrate them. And yet we are not doing it. And we also know, just as after during the World War II, is these are as a result of political issues um, that are could have been dealt with some other way. And your own background and experience as a refugee, how has that shaped how you think about this issue? Well, my background and everybody's background obviously plays a very large role in this, but it would be pretentious of me to say that I can identify with people that have to leave their countries and be in some kind of boat that might sink and end Mm. up where uh, nobody wants them and doesn't treat them well. Because in my situation, the first time was uh, I was two years old. My uh, father had been a Czechoslovak diplomat and arrived in England and became a member of the government in exile. Apparently, uh, I was told later, we did have to escape from Czechoslovakia and my parents hid for some time and then took a lot of um, trains and boats to get to England. But when we came to the United States, we came on diplomatic passports. And so I don't have a horrendous story, but I do identify with people that are picked up from a life that they are used to uh, with families in a country where they speak the language and all of a sudden are, are transported into an entirely different kind of society and try to figure out what their future is. Therefore, I have gotten passionate about really trying to be helpful in some way now and trying to explain why this is such a difficult issue and how it affects uh, individual human beings very deeply. Um, I want to I want to take us back to the refugee crisis and, and thinking about uh, the role of international institutions and burden sharing, which is a major issue in thinking about this. And right now, what you see is a distribution of burdening refugees that is completely disproportionate. So uh, despite the fact that in Europe they feel the crush of the refugee influx, proportionately middle-income countries and lower-income countries house around 83% of refugees. I always, I always find the statistic totally uh, mind-boggling around Jordan, where Jordan has absorbed about a million refugees. And proportionally in the U.S., that would be similar to the United States absorbing 63 million refugees. And the equivalent of all of the UK. Yeah, it's wild. And one of the solutions that I think has emerged pretty prominently through the World Bank and through the European Union is an attempt to essentially use financial instruments um, and financial incentives for countries uh, to maintain their refugees. So the Jordan Compact was an agreement made between the European Union and Jordan that gave Jordan preferential tariff access to their market for firms that hired refugees and kept them there. And uh, the World Bank has gone around to multiple countries offering these sorts of, of deals. And, and just recently, the president of Tanzania actually turned down some of this concessional finance um, and said, we aren't looking for concessional finance. The, the problem, the magnitude of this problem is so much bigger than that. And I just would love to hear your take on whether you think some of the kind of financial technocratic solutions that we're seeing dominate the conversation on refugees are sufficient the moment or whether they're going to fall short? I think you've said an awful lot of very interesting and and useful things. And let me just say, I've been to Jordan um, and I went uh, to see the camps. Having seen a number of camps previously in my life in in the Balkans, um, the big camp I went to is very organized and Mm -hmm. clean and you know, the people that have escaped, frankly, and have left are pretty entrepreneurial. 
Um, and so they created this shop, they call it the Champs-Élysées, um, and they trade things and all aspects of it. The issue, however, is not so much even the people in the camps, but the people that are not in the camps, that are living in Amman and various mm -hmm. places and theoretically taking jobs from local people. You mentioned the ratio. I have uh, had a, I had an interesting conversation with King Abdullah of Jordan, and when we first started talking about it, he said it's the equivalent as though the United States had 40 million refugees. And then I saw him. I said, you know, Your Majesty, I quote you all the time. He said, you're wrong. It's now more than 60 million <laughs> refugees. So they really, and they are a frontline state. Mm -hmm. And so they have uh, legitimately are saying they have an awful lot of problems. And uh, and I think that it isn't just a matter of a kind of, there are people who say you're just paying us off. But it's a relatively easy place to get to, obviously. I do think that um, there are issues about how countries that take a lot of refugees need to be recompensed in, in some kind of a way. Um, I do find interesting, I didn't know about the Tanzania thing, but I think that that is very interesting, is that they recognize the fact that it is not a matter of just money, but that it's an issue of trying to figure out uh, education and healthcare systems and a variety of things. Uh, I think that many of the European countries um, have been generous, but most of them have been not have not been. On the other hand, I am mortified as an American that, in fact, we are making comments such as these when our country, the United States, is operating in a way now that is un-American, as far as I'm concerned, um, in terms of uh, how we have the, the very small number that kind of keeps shrinking depending mm -hmm. upon one day how the president feels or doesn't. Um, and I think we're, it's very worrisome, and it's very hard, I think, for us to keep telling everybody how to behave when we're not doing it. I want to come on to that question of how do we tackle this recession in the responsibilities that uh, America has towards refugees in a second. But before we do that, can I just pick up on this point about Jordan and, and Lebanon and Turkey? Because in some ways, we've seen the biggest political impact of refugees in the countries that have been affected the least in Europe and America. Do you worry when you go to Jordan or to Lebanon that the political stability of those countries is being uh, affected severely by the refugee influx? And what kind of extra uh, investment and policies are required to make sure that those countries don't uh, end up being swept along in the uh, the tide? Well, I think... To answer that, I think it's important to understand what's going on in the Middle East generally. And I have just spent quite a lot of time uh, working on a in-depth kind of look at the Middle East um, under the auspices of the Atlantic Council. I, I did that with Steve Hadley in a bipartisan way. And I think we looked at the Middle East as a crisis in, in the Middle East that is spreading all over the world, um, portrayed not just by the uh, refugees, but just general in terms of the spewing out of a variety of problems there. And they, these are very deep. Um, part of the issue uh, is that, in fact, um, uh, you know, the modern history of the Middle East begins after World War I. And um, I, I worked for a president who actually read a lot and assigned us books. Um, and one that President Clinton assigned to me was The Peace to End All Peace, mm -hmm. um, which describes the creation of the modern Middle East. And 
Uh, the short version of it is that the modern Middle East was created by the British and French bureaucracies lying to each other and basically creating some artificial countries. Um, and so bringing peoples together that uh, may maybe didn't have much in common or a variety of issues. So there's that. Then you That's have- a sort of a depressing um, conclusion, though, because you could argue the only way in which natural boundaries are going to occur is through more war. No, I mean, it's it's natural boundaries. I mean, they are some of them are historical. And the truth is that the Middle East really was a question. Um, it was the end of the Ottoman Empire, who belonged where. But it does create um, some countries that are very complicated. I mean, Syria mm-hmm. is an old country, but some of the borders there have been a problem in Iraq and um, so Lebanon. And so uh, I think to go back on something, I think it is important for people to understand the history of the of the peoples from which they come or where they were. But I do think the thing that then happened, I think most Americans know very little about Islam, much less the difference between Sunni and Shia, and then the subsects of that. Then also there is the problem of the Persians versus the Arabs, Iran versus uh, the mm-hmm. other countries. And then you have the issues of what the uh, results of the first Gulf War were, and then the Iraq War. Um, and so it's just unbelievably complicated. And the refugees are a part of that story, but not the whole story of what's happened in the Middle East. Um, and I think also what the relationship of the Middle East is and should be or could be with the rest of the world. I mean, for instance, Turkey. Turkey, I find a fascinating country, both um, geographically and historically. I happen to think it was a big mistake for the EU not to be more welcoming to Turkey because now it is turning more and more to the east. The refugee situation has complicated their lives. There's no question because they have an influx of them. And then they are very worried about what is happening in Syria uh, with the Kurds whom they fear. And so I have to tell you, even I, um, every morning when I wake up and I read the papers, it's almost as if I need to make a list of who's on whose side on that particular day. Um, and it gets comp- more and more complicated every day. And the refugees are just one piece of it. Mm-hmm. And in some ways, they become a pawn um, mm-hmm. in all of this. And uh, speaking, you know, uh, if countries getting money, the Turks, uh, there was a deal for a while in terms of that the Europeans were going to help financially to deal with the influx of um, uh, refugees into Turkey. But since then, it's gotten more complicated because the Turks are now fighting with uh, one group of the Kurds and the Russians are somehow mucking around in it and trying to figure out. I have never seen anything as complicated as this. And the refugee part is one of the most tragic aspects of it. So I'm going to, I think, that hits at a really crucial argument that I think you're starting to hear increasingly so around uh, the role of the United States in refugee resettlement. So the U.S. has historically been one of the most welcoming countries for refugees with definite ebbs um, in times and how much it was welcomed. But over the past few years, it on average received about 90,000 refugees to resettle, which accounts for more than half of the total number of refugees that are resettled globally um, in general. But since the Trump administration has come in, starting with the refugee ban and then a slow strangulation of the refugee pipeline. We are barely seeing um, the number of refugees hit the 
quota of 45,000 that was determined by the administration. Um, right now, we've hit about 20,000, and we are not quite sure um, whether the entire enterprise will remain. And I think in a financial argument that you hear that kind of uh, um, corresponds to the deal that you see in Turkey is that actually it's just cheaper to deal with these issues in poor countries. So rather than open up a refugee resettlement slot here in the United States, which costs tens of thousands of dollars, why not send that aid into Turkey's, Lebanon's, Jordan's, where your dollar goes farther because these are middle-income countries and lower-income countries? And I'm curious to hear how you think about that argument, which is, I think, becoming increasingly prominent um, within the resettlement space. I find it a, a, a very unpleasant, and um, uh, I could use another word. Um, Please do. Yeah, no, <laughs> I mean, a BS argument. Mm -hmm. um, I really do think that the issue here is um, we are a very large country. Um, and I, I do speak for, I mean, I am a refugee, so I find it kind of um, uh, sad that, I, that one has to defend it and, and self-serving, actually because uh, refugees have actually not been so bad for America. Um, and, but I do think that we need to be an example to countries uh, in many ways. And we are a large country, and we have plenty of room. I also, every day, you read some story about the fact that we need people to work here, um, not necessarily in the technological or technical field, but any number of different things. And then, if I might... I know we're talking about refugees, but this is a complicated subject because there also are immigrants. And immigrants, according to the law, are kind of a different category of people that want to come to this country or any country uh, in order to improve their lives, not because they are in fear of persecution or uh, death or um, genocidal killing and a variety of different things. And so... Um, and every country does have a right to have an immigration policy. That, that is one of the aspects that a country, a sovereign country, can do. Um, I also do think that um, it's uh, very patronizing to think that let those people take care of those people mm -hmm. uh, rather than saying uh, we are going to do what we need to do. Aside from the fact that whoever is saying that, they aren't giving any money to aid programs in order to even do it. So it's hypocrisy of the largest uh, kind. We aren't, we are not giving money to give money. Um, and while one maybe could make that kind of a rational argument, um, it's philosophically and morally unjust. I mean, we should be accepting more refugees. Mm -hmm. um, I think there's an interesting question though, about if you have a finite amount of aid money and you can argue that it goes further if you give it to low-income countries than high-income countries, then let's do that. But frankly, the refugees that we resettle are uh, an asset to the country, aren't they? I think in this particular study that we were doing, um, um, and refugees were part of the story, and we were trying to show, and I think legitimately exactly what you said, Rafi, is that refugees can be an asset, mm -hmm. uh, that they are people, um, many of them do have uh, high-powered educations. Many of them are willing to work hard um, and that they're not kind of a burden everywhere or an intrusion. Um, and I think we need to see it that way. It's interesting. Some of the data that in academic research coming out of the United States recently that's trying to answer this question empirically shows that refugees are on average net contributors. It takes them a few years to come, get up on their feet, learn the language, find employment that's stable. 
But then after an average of about 11 years, they become net contributors into the economy, um, with some doing extremely well and some not. But on average, it's absolutely the right type of investment. I think that I wonder about, though, going back to kind of when we were speaking about identity before, is if you're in a place where individuals feel like their identity is threatened, that they may be displaced from the economy or dislocated from the economy, that hearing a story about succeeding refugees may not necessarily be the thing that persuades them. And I don't know if you have any thoughts on how you think about that type of framing. Well, maybe some of the refugees actually uh, are able to employ others. Uh, Jeff Bezos's father is a Cuban. Um, and, uh, you know, there are a lot of people, uh, Andy Grove and various mm -hmm. people that created a lot of these big companies that employ people. So I think that um, it's it's a kind of a uh, irrational argument. But I do think that one has to figure out that, um, and especially for this country to make the bottom line is everybody in this country came from somewhere else except the the Native Americans that were displaced. Um, they are the displaced people within this country. So uh, I find this a, a really uh, morally uh, unacceptable argument, and it's kind of as though they decided the Statue of Liberty was lying. And as you see the U.S. reduce its commitments to global resettlement, how do you think other countries will react you know, will it produce a domino effect of others saying, well, if the U.S. is shirking, we're going to shirk? Definitely. That's what I mean. And and I, I have to say, um, I loved being secretary of state, of representing this country and talking about uh, what our values were and what we believed in. Um, and I think that we do when we are doing something that is morally correct and principled, we have a very big influence. And I am very troubled by the fact that at this stage, the United States is backing off or backing out or uh, deciding that we are victims of everything, uh, that uh, people are taking advantage of us, when in fact, I think we do have a responsibility to, to do the right thing, to understand that these people, let me just, I am thrilled to be an American, but most people don't want to leave the countries of their birth. Mm -hmm. uh, they want to be there with their families, with a language that they understand. And just imagine picking up and leaving a country where you're being bombed or chemically uh, poisoned um, and taking your family and leaving some of your family there to come to a new country where people tell you they don't want you. I mean, I, I find that just unbelievable. This is, this is a perfect place to pivot into uh, another conversation that we want to have around humanitarian intervention, because I think one of the things that is underappreciated at this moment is how much uh, the Syrian conflict in particular has destabilized surrounding countries, Jordan, Lebanon, and Turkey, like we talked about, and, and Europe in many ways with the uh, displacement it's caused. Um, during your tenure, you were very involved in humanitarian intervention. It's something you've written about extensively. And I'm just actually curious to hear how your views about humanitarian intervention have evolved over the past few decades. Well, um, they have evolved and I've gotten very involved in it. You know, uh, you earlier asked about background. We all are um, either have the baggage or the advantage of our background. And I am a child of World War II that was born in a country that was created in 1918. Um, and in the middle of Central Europe um, and spent World War II in England. Um, we, 
uh, I was the only child at the time, but my parents picked up and left and went to England. Um, I didn't know about my background before, but I now, um, and I found out, I, I was raised a Catholic, married an Episcopalian, and found out I was of Jewish origin. So I have it's interfaith. amazing arc. Well, I have interfaith dialogues alone. <laughs> um, but, but basically, I think people can say uh, that we didn't know what was going on during World War II. Mm-hmm. Um, and I happen to think that's not true, but we can say it. Now we know everything that's going on everywhere. A lot of people have actually asked me whether I got so involved in the Balkans because I found out about my background. The bottom line is I had gotten involved in it before I found out about my background. And part of my the what I did know was my father had been the Czechoslovak ambassador to Yugoslavia. So I did know about the Balkans. I did think once we knew what was going on there, people being um, first in Bosnia and then in Kosovo killed um, or raped or sent out of their countries, not for anything they had done, but or who they were, and that that didn't seem possible at the end of the 20th century when we actually knew what was going on. So we began to talk about how to, I was at the United Nations from 93 to 97, what one could do to help them. Um, And that was kind of the beginning. People didn't talk about it as humanitarian intervention, but trying to figure out what there was that could be done to assist them so that Um, they uh, did not have to suffer just because the Serbs had decided they were going to get rid of them. And so we began to look at what the legal aspects were. We we created the war crimes tribunals and then kind of made the peacekeeping operations uh, somewhat more um, involved rather than just being neutral. What happened then, the whole issue of humanitarian intervention went even beyond that, thanks to the Canadians in many ways who began to argue about human security, that we had to worry about what was going on in other countries. And then it has led to a whole new doctrine called responsibility to protect, which is based, uh, I think people don't fully understand it, but it's based on the idea that it is the sovereign responsibility of a country to take care of its own people, that that is what the social contract is really about, is that they're supposed to protect them. And then the second pillar is if they can't protect them themselves, they should ask for international help. And if the third pal- pillar is if they don't ask for international help, then it is the responsibility of the international community under a Security Council mandate to go in and do something about it. And I happen to think that's the right thing to do, but complicated because of the whole issue of sovereignty. So we are in new territory, but the question comes down to Do we have any responsibility for each other? Which then goes back to something even earlier, which is why don't we try to prevent some of these things from happening? And during the Cold War, I've I've said this a lot, um, the world was divided between the red and the red, white, and blue. Um, And we used our aid program to try to get countries to be on our side, and the Soviets did the same thing. With the end of the Cold War, the ground defrosted, and all of a sudden, the the worms and the snakes started crawling around. And so all these kind of ethnic disputes inside countries, not between countries, mm-hmm. began to surface. And that's why we need to do something about it. And that question, that dilemma of what responsibility we have to each other, is one that I think 
has evolved over the last 10, 20 years. If you think about um, when I was in the foreign office, a whole generation of people had grown up, grown up with the guilt of failing to intervene in Rwanda and in Bosnia. And they became the most interventionist in Sierra Leone, in Kosovo, even Iraq. And then now you have another group of people who've been seared by the conflict in Afghanistan and Iraq and argued, and maybe Obama was one of these people, who argued against intervening in, in Syria. And I'm just interested in how we avoid this constant pendulum swinging back and forth from interventionism and how we can put in place a more robust framework for making decisions about when and how to intervene. Well, I think um, what we need to do is actually, and unfortunately it doesn't happen enough, is to talk about uh, how you prevent these things from happening uh, mm-hmm. and try to develop a way um, that the international organizations can operate more effectively. I mean, I find fascinating um, what the UN uh, could do or doesn't do or how decisions are, are made. And the bottom Don't line <laughs> uh, that is so interesting is how the peacekeeping whole concept uh, evolved in many ways. Initially, um, according to the UN Charter, they wanted to have a, the UN to have its own military. Um, and... Uh, uh, the Americans, among others, didn't want that to happen in terms of kind of having a a politically um, un, undirected group of people all of a sudden uh, having their own military. But there is a responsibility in the UN Charter for countries to provide troops or uh, various ways to, to mm-hmm. help. So initially, the peacekeeper, peacekeepers were totally neutral. Um, and um, they went in after the peace was ke- uh, was made mm-hmm. by some kind of an agreement to keep the sides separated from each other. When I got to the UN in 93, there already were uh, more peacekeeping operations, um, and it was unclear what they did, frankly. I'll never forget this. There was something like 60,000 peacekeepers out, mm-hmm. and there was a peacekeeping office at in the Secretary of the UN, but they were only open from nine. It was the world's emergency number, but it was, they were only open from 9 to 5 on weekdays. Conflict stops after yes, 5 p.m. on weekdays, yeah. And so it was fascinating to be there at the time uh, when we were beginning to think what else the peacekeepers could do. And... Um, they were. It was not simple, as you already pointed out. I mean, there were uh, there were questions about um, what had happened in Somalia, for mm-hmm. instance, or what was going on in Bosnia, and who were the people that were actually sent into these peacekeeping operations. How did they work along the other UN bodies? So, the um, refugee or the High Commissioner for Refugees basically are supposed to be neutral, and all of a sudden the peacekeepers or peacemakers were taking sides. And so it was very complicated. We talked about it all the time. Um, and um, you raised the Rwanda issue. Um, what uh, weighs very heavy on all of us that were had anything to do with it. Um, but what happened was that there had been a peace between the Hutus and Tutsis in Rwanda, and there was a peacekeeping operation there, primarily but with Belgians. Uh, And then there was um, the um, airplane of the Hutu president was shot down, and there was what I call volcanic genocide. Mm -hmm. It happened, and um, the question was, uh, what had happened and could we get um, any troops in there fast enough? And aside from worrying about the the Belgians, um, 
I maintain that we, uh, I happen to think we should have done something, but the bottom line is there was, because it was volcanic, how to get in there quickly enough. And even though the lessons we thought had been learned, and even though what was happening in Darfur and Sudan was rolling genocide, we still didn't get forces in there. And so this is one of those major questions of how do you intervene, under what circumstances, and who will carry it out? There is, because there is no UN military, who are the troops that really go in there? And this is an ongoing discussion. So this actually gets at one of, I think, the really big tensions in intervention and peacekeeping, which is as information comes out about what's going on in a genocide or mass atrocities, um, it takes a while to understand it, um, to get a clear sense of the situation, and then to determine what the best uh, act response is. And in situations like Syria or Darfur, where it's extremely politically complex, I think compared to Rwanda, which was, I think, a little bit simpler in terms of sides and the dynamics there, it takes a while to figure out how you actually uh, launch one of these interventions and who you're going to side with in the ways that you're talking about the kind of evolution of peacekeeping taking place. And you're in somewhat of a situation where the longer you wait, the higher the probability, the higher the chances that those sides fragment, like we've seen in Syria, or factionalize, or the conflict becomes just much more complicated, which drives you to want to intervene earlier when you have less information, but you have more impact. And I'm curious as to how you think about paradox of intervening early when you could have more impact, but it's it's much more challenging versus a later fragmented stage? Well, I think the hard part is, does intervention have to always be military? And I think the question is, we, we really would be better off if we could figure out how, what is creating this particular problem? And could there be negotiators in a diplomatic way of approaching it and trying to prevent it? The other thing that is a genuine problem is who does it? And in order for the UN to get involved, there needs to be a Security Council mandate. Um, and depending upon where this is, you don't get the Security Council mandate. That was the problem in Kosovo. We knew uh, that the Soviet, the Russians, were going to veto it. So then you go to NATO. Uh, and then there's a whole other set of issues. And NATO is really a military force and not kind of a combined uh, um, force of a variety of different people. And so that kind of complicates how you do it. Um, and yes, it would be better to get in earlier, but that requires a different political setup. The other part I'd love to get into is that um, what happened, Afghanistan, actually, um, very long story um, in terms of who one allies with and what, um, but NATO was in there. And the bottom line is, and we were talking earlier about whether one should, uh, how do you persuade the people of X country that it's worth their time to go in there and spend time on people that you don't know what they're doing? And so I have now been talking about something I call the Karzai effect. Mm -hmm. President Karzai not only did not say thank you for the number of NATO forces, uh, large numbers of Americans, who died in Afghanistan, but also said that um, it was all our, you know, the, the mistakes were, that were made were our fault. So then because we need to, um, are a democratic country that has to be funded with the, for these things and get approval, people will say, why should we go into a country where they're now blaming us for going in and doing the wrong thing? So 
Um, this is this gets increasingly complicated, and also because these things aren't resolved very quickly. So President Obama, I mean, one can trace different things. There's a real question about, well, we know why we went into Afghanistan. That was 9-11. But there were real questions about why we went into Iraq. Um, and I think Iraq is one of the more disastrous policies that then did, in fact, create a lot of these things we're talking about in the Middle East. And so why did we do that? And so President Obama... Uh, was elected to get us out of those places. Um, and so I think that one has to see the evolution of policy. And then, of course, um, I think that there were a lot of issues that still were taken care of because of humanitarian reasons. So what we learn lessons. We never have—I I, I do teach, and I teach a course. I say foreign policy is just trying to get some country to do what you want. So what are the tools? And there are not a lot of tools in the national security toolbox. Um, and you have to try the different tools in order. And one of the questions is, when do you use force? Do you use it earlier? Do you use it late? Do you build up to it? Um, and then what is the whole role of sovereignty, interference in internal affairs? So I think one of the things, the international system is in, as Richard Haas has said, in disarray. I think there really are questions about how it works. Where do we get involved? Do we care about what's happening to other people? And especially with the increase in technology, we do know what's going on everywhere. By 2050, the world population will reach nearly 10 billion and food production will need to grow by 70%. What if artificial intelligence could help? Farmers are already using it to help increase crop yields. Watson and the IBM Cloud provide access to weather data and analyse satellite imagery to help them monitor soil moisture levels and reduce water waste. So as the population grows, more food can be put on tables. Let's put smart to work. Find out how at ibm.com forward slash smart. I want to pick up on one thing that you've noted a few times, which is you have to focus on prevention. I think we're in a political moment right now where uh, it feels darker and cloudier than it has in in many years um, here in the United States, in Europe, and globally. Um, how do you think about the role of prevention in this political moment in places where I don't think we would have entertained a return to conflict like we are now? Well, I think that um, it takes... First of all, knowing where the countries are um, and being interested in what's happening. And I do think what I find interesting, I this administration has actually produced its national security documents sooner or earlier than I would have expected. Um, and there is the national security strategy itself and then the defense strategy and the nuclear strategy. But the um, I do think that in a democracy— one has to explain to the people why um, they are spending money, why, and therefore um, the fact that it is all framed on, I can argue this in a way of protecting America. Um, and I do think that it is the job of every president to protect our people, our territory, and our way of life. That's why 
uh, we have a president. And so the question is, and Congress, how this is done and what, how many, to what extent is there influence from the outside on this? I can argue that we are safer when countries are democracies and the people uh, are um, satisfied in the places where they live uh, and they're not petri dishes for uh, those that want to kill us in some form or another. So I can argue that uh, it is good for America if other countries are not in a, a political turmoil where, in fact, they're killing each other for no reason except, uh, as I said, who they are, not anything that they've done. That requires diplomacy, and it requires working with the regional powers there and not just saying, I don't want anything to do with you, um, and that the U.S., as I said earlier, is a victim. So I am troubled that we um, there are people in the U.S. who actually think that the U.N. has black helicopters that are going to attack us and steal our lawn furniture, and then there's some people who don't like the U.N. because it's full of foreigners, which can't be helped. So um, the bottom line, we need to be more supportive of the U.N. and NATO and African Union and, and um, the Arab League and various other uh, organizations in order to make the international system stronger. But it, there is a crisis going on and we aren't helping it in any shape or form. In these last few minutes, we want to ask you a few questions about some of the contemporary political challenges. And one of them that springs to mind, and we've touched on it already, is, is Russia and Russia's role in addressing some of the crises in the Middle East. Russia is an increasingly pivotal country, particularly within the Middle East. And when I think back to a decade ago, I would never have imagined that Russia, with an economy the size of Italy's, would be the peace broker in the Middle, Middle East. And when you think back to Russia's evolving role, how far do you think things went wrong after the Cold War uh, in NATO enlargement? To what extent did that decision um, lead to the current standoff we're in now? And how do we really reset the relationship with Russia? Well, let me just say, again, you have to go back in history, which is um, I happen to believe that it was the wrong thing to say that we had won the Cold War. The Russians, the Soviet Union lost the Cold War. And that's not just a semantic difference. Communism failed. Uh, and what happened was in Central and Eastern Europe, the satellite system and the Warsaw Pact fell apart. Um, and uh, I know from my own history that those countries, uh, that it was as a result of agreements made after World War II, that half of Europe was behind the Iron Curtain. Um, and that when those countries, for instance, the United States offered the Marshall Plan to all the countries in Eastern Europe and Russia, um, and they were told by the by Moscow that they couldn't be part of it. So all of a sudden, um, in 1989-90, um, there are countries that want to be a part of Europe. There's no question about that. So um, I know that there's some people now who think that that was all a mistake to enlarge NATO, but these were countries that wanted to be part of Europe. And I personally talked to Yeltsin, and I said, that they could, in, Russia could be a member of NATO if they were prepared to follow the various parts of it. And we did sign a founding act with them where they could have a relationship with the United States. Uh, and um, But what had happened was 
we were asked to do something that had never been done in history, which was how to devolve the power of your major adversary without a war. Uh, and so I think the the thing that we overestimated was the desire of Russia to be part of an international system. Uh, and um, so I, I think we did the right thing in terms of enlarging NATO. Um, and I'd, what has happened now is that, um, I mean, the fact that Putin could actually say that the greatest disaster of the 20th century was the disintegration of the Soviet Union, please, you know, two world wars, um, and all the various things that had happened in, in the 20th century, and he has the audacity to say something like that. Um, now, the thing that has happened, and I did a lot of surveys um, in Europe after the end of the Cold War, um, it focus groups and all kinds of things, and one I'll never forget was a focus group outside of Moscow. And this man stands up and says, I'm so embarrassed. We used to be a superpower, and now we're Bangladesh with missiles. And what has happened is Putin has picked up this loss of identity and now created um, a sense for people to think that they are great again. Um, and they, as you pointed out, they don't exactly have a functioning economy. I'm not sure they're making peace in the Middle East. I think what they're doing is uh, trying to reassert their influence in the Middle East by playing both sides against the middle. Uh, and pushing in a number of different ways. And their goal now is to divide Europe and divide us from Europe. And I don't think we can ever forget that we are dealing with a KGB agent who knows how to do propaganda uh, and the various aspects of how he is using cyber technology to divide uh, the democracies in Europe and divide them from us. Let me take us to a kind of a, a different context, but with similar underlying yeah. features, which is North Korea. You were the highest uh, ranking government official to visit Pyongyang. And um, many of the things that you're talking around around identity um, are particularly uh, salient in North Korea. The kind of uh, cult of identity around the Kim dynasty um, that is projected, as well as the kind of um, othering of the United States in the international arena is, is really profound. And when you look forward in the next decade, what are the strategies that you think will be effective in uh, averting conflict with North Korea and actually really taking very seriously that type of identity politics in their domestic polity? Well, I think that um, it's a very dangerous situation. There's no question. And um, the whole issue of what um, the history with North Korea, um, the Korean War, and never having actually a peace treaty to end it, and um, the fact that it is a um, it's a family business and dynasty creates problems. I think one of the issues that um, is very always hard to explain, as administrations change, um, we do have a remarkable way of kind of peaceful transfer of power, but there are differences that come up between one administration and another. And there's nothing that's easier to do, which I'm about to do, is to blame the next people or the previous people. So the North Korean situation falls into that category. And um, when I was there, which was late summer or fall, actually, of 2000, uh, we were in the middle of negotiations. We had gone through some pretty tough times, and um, we were very concerned about the, the missiles that the North Koreans were developing, and also various things that they were doing 
um, with in, in terms of their nuclear development. And um, when I was there, by the way, I have to take full responsibility for Dennis Rodman because what <laughs> happened— Nobody has ever done the that only before. <laughs> thing, the only thing that we did know about Kim Chong-il, the father of this young man, was that he loved basketball. And so I took over a basketball autograph by Michael Jordan— which is in their holy of holies, so that is the whole problem. <laughs> but um, we were in the middle of negotiations on missile limits, and Kim Jong-il also had said that he would have no problem with us leaving our forces in South Korea. Then, if you remember, the election of 2000 happened. Uh, it was confusing to some Americans, but it was also confusing to Kim Jong-il. I had briefed uh, Colin Powell on where we were with the negotiations, with, which were just... Uh, being put into place on on missile limits. He was very interested in it. There was a headline in the Washington Post that said Powell to continue Clinton policies on North Korea. Mm. He was hauled into the Oval Office and told no way. And so there has been a series of uh, ups and downs in all of this. I do think that um, what is interesting in identity politics, the Koreans, North and South, are the same people. So this is not some kind of a different ethnic group. What it is are people that have been um, acculturated or changed by uh, you know half a century of being separated and one country developing from a authoritarian government into a democratic government because they were able to have uh, a free market and uh, were able to develop a middle class that wants to be different. But I think it is a very serious issue at the moment. I think that it's very important to go back to my toolbox and use diplomacy at this point. And the last stop on this brief world tour of hotspots, um, going to, to Myanmar, and you were very close to Aung San Suu Kyi. Um, and as we see hundreds of thousands of Rohingya pour into Bangladesh, I'm interested in your take on the situation there. And is this a story of a character that uh, people misjudged? Or is it that she's operating within... Very, you know, very severe constraints of the junta. Well, um, I think that it's a uh, it's an issue in terms of what a complex country it is, uh, and she is Burmese, um, and I think that um, both things are actually true. I think in terms of she has a very difficult situation of uh, the military continues to control a large portion, 25% of their parliament, um, and really does control a lot of the government. I have to say I'm very disappointed in her reaction to this um, and that um, I think that the treatment of the Rohingya is outrageous. I mean, that that's not even the right word, um, of people that have been um, massacred and made to leave their country. Um, they are kind of making up facts saying that they are uh, immigrants or refugees when the bottom line is they've been there since the 18th century or something and have been very much a part of, of society. Um, and I think that um, I, I am willing to accept that she's operating under some tough um, uh, conditions, but I also um, am surprised that she who... Um, I thought was a humanist and a somebody that really deserved her Nobel Prize in terms of having a larger vision, 
uh, has not spoken up enough about this because um, uh, what is needed are people that are um, uh, tell it like it is, you know, and I think that this is one of the great tragedies. And people were so hopeful um, about um, what could happen in Myanmar um, and saw it as a country that had actually emerged from a terrible time of military dictatorship, frankly, where there was a leader that um, had an incredible spirit and bravery and stick-to-itiveness um, that um, we were all looking to it as, as, a, as a bright spot, and I think it clearly is not. And to, to wrap us out, you have been very outspoken against the current administration um, and the current kind of uh, dark clouds that are settling over the United States. And it makes me actually think back to one of um, your old friends and um, compatriots, uh, Volkov Havel, and who's a famous Czech dissident who was part politician, but before that, uh, in the arts. Um, and one of the things that he kind of continuously called for was more, uh, more poetry in, um, in dissidence and more of a role of the arts in fighting back. And I'm curious what you take from his reflections on those moments of um, fighting kind of uh, awful regimes um, to this current moment. Well, I think that um, the thing about him, and by the way, I, I was often asked, who are the three people that I admired or who are the people I admired the most in the world? And I said three people. Um, one was Václav Havel, the second was Nelson Mandela, and the third actually was Aung San Suu Kyi. Mm. And I was asked, what did I admire about them? And I said, what I admired was that they forgave their jailers and were looking to the future. And so that's why I'm disappointed in Aung San Suu Kyi, because she did for, not only forgave her jailers, but um, has not kind of looked enough to the future. But Václav Havel, I think had the capability of understanding the power of the powerless and what, in fact, needed to be done um, in a way to uh, understand your own people. And, uh, and one of the things that he said when he came to the United States to speak before Congress was help the Russians. That was what he said in Congress because he said they needed to evolve from something Different. So I think having an imagination um, and understanding what people need of humanity. He was a humanitarian, a humanist in every single way. Um, and, um, and you were talking about the arts. One of the fun parts about him was his love of music. Um, and whenever he came to the United States and I'd take him around, we would go and listen to jazz. Um, and he really did love that. And uh, uh, and what happened, interestingly enough, his love of music and jazz, there was a jazz section in Czechoslovakia at the time that became a political force. So kind of the combination of using art um, in a way that gave people strength to do political things. One of the fun parts, I have to say, is going into his office um, in uh, at the castle and his really great love of abstract art and just generally his joy in culture um, and his plays. And um, and his one of his last plays was something called Leaving, and it was how hard it is to leave public office. I feel the same way. Secretary Albright, thank you very much for joining thank us. Thank you so much. Thank you. 
that was our first episode. Thank you so much for joining and listening. We hope you made it through. Nope, nope, you didn't. That was the silence that suggests no, you didn't. But tell us if you're listening. Write us an email at displacedatrescue.org. We'd love to hear from you. Subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts, and please do leave us a review. Feel free to get in touch with us on Twitter at Grant M. Gordon and at Argaramurthy. I have about 12 and a half followers, so I would love a 13. Most of those are actually people you paid. uh, They're bots, aren't they, really? So if you're an actual real person who wants to get in touch with Grant and have a conversation with him, please do. Please drive down the price of the bots that I'm paying. That's the genuine goal of this. Um, But tweet us, drop us a note. We would love to hear from you. We would love to thank all of the people who helped out with Displaced. On the IRC side, we'd love to shout out to Catherine Long, Alex Bandea, Ben Moskowitz, and the IRC family. And on the Vox Media side, thanks to Jelani Carter, Bridget Armstrong, and Zach Khan. Also, Pedro Alvarez, Jarrett Floyd, and Brendan McFarland. Miles, you will compose our theme music. And we've got to thank our senior producer, Golder Arthur. And Vox Media's executive producer is Nishat Kowa. I'm Ravi Garamurthy. And I am Grant Gordon. Thank you so much for listening and looking forward to seeing you next week. 